Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. I've been thinking about uh, the fact that my wife and I next week will be celebrating our anniversary. We've been married almost five years, so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but one thing we, we are struggling with is that with everything locked down, we're, we're thinking about actually what to do, where to go, um, what, whether we're going to take a... I, I took a couple days off, so we don't know whether, whether they're going to take a staycation or a vacation or what we're going to do. Um, but one thing that, that often comes up when we're talking about our anniversary is how we kind of regret hiring uh, a videographer for our wedding. We have, we have it on audio, we have the ceremony on, on audio recording, and of course we have friends and family who are at the ceremony and at the reception who took a lot of um, video on their, their camera phone. But every once in a while we're like, oh, you know, maybe we should have just hired a videographer who could have recorded the whole thing so we could relive it. But one way that we do um, relive it, that we do every year, is we, we pull up the, we dig up the old USB drives that had our wedding music on them. And we go, we plug it into our Volkswagen, directly into our Volkswagen, or, and we listen to the music that played during our wedding. And I think it, it's very powerful because there's something, you know, tra transformative or, or uh, symbolic or, or helps us to remember, something that helps us to remember about music in particular um, but it, it gets us in like the mood of, of, our, of our wedding that like, oh, these, this was a great playlist. And by the way, you know, I put together the playlist. That was my job. That was my one job. Alyssa coordinated the entire wedding. You know, she, she did uh, cord lined up the caterer and, and all the things and, and got people to volunteer. But I uploaded some MP3 files onto a USB drive. But I think it's a great playlist. And every single time we listen to it, um, usually on our anniversary, um, we're, we're transported back to that moment. Well. There are many moments in our lives, like getting married, like those big life-changing events that we would really love to relive. And we think, is there any way to kind of go back to uh, find, uh, to relive and re-experience these kind of events? And, you know, there's a whole industry of, I don't know, memories uh, of people making memories and you know it, it's it's photo albums it's it's digitizing old family tapes it's um, picking up the and developing those old films and maybe digitizing those and stuff like that and there's a whole industry of uh, preserving memory but as we look at um, a couple tremendous aspects of the Christian life we we come to understand that their role really in preserving our memory of the change and the, the greatness and the faithfulness of God. That's really God's aim in giving us the particular gifts that we're going to talk about today, which are the gifts of baptism and communion. And yes, they are gifts to the church. They are gifts to us. I think too often when we think about the practices that the church has done for thousands of years, I think too quickly we associate them with some kind of empty ritual of, oh, this is just a cultural thing, or this is just what the church does, and it's, it's something that uh, we practice every once in a while, and you know, it, it's, it maybe 
you look forward to it, maybe you don't, maybe you simply don't understand it, but you practice it anyway. But really, what we're supposed to see in baptism and the Lord's Supper is, is really signs of God's faithfulness. They are, are signs that represent a passionate, a, a living faith, a thriving faith, and they're also representing spiritual realities. And in practicing them as a church, practicing baptism, practicing the Lord's Supper, we indeed actually grow in our faith. And so we're going to look at those two aspects, uh, or those, these two practices today in particular, pract- baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at them, and we're going to look at them firstly by understanding them as quote-unquote sacraments. You guys have, maybe have heard the word sacrament before. And simply stated, um, uh, the the baptism and the Lord's Supper, or baptism and what we would call communion, um, interchangeable terms, are, are sacraments. And you guys might think sacraments, isn't that like, you know, you, there's confirmation in the Catholic Church and there's all of these other things. Well, we believe that the New Testament only prescribed to the church two what are called sacraments. And I keep using that word. What is a sacrament? Well, I think uh, a good definition... I read the other day was from Francis Turretin, who is a uh, 17th century reformer. He said, the sacraments are the signs and seals of the grace of God in Christ. So, you know, just, just think about that again. The sacraments are signs and seals of the grace of God in Christ. So they are signs. They, they signify something. When we look at them, we're supposed to understand something from them. And other formulations and definitions of sacrament also mention the fact that these are signs, these are representations of a covenant between God and His people. And if we look back even to the Old Testament, God made a promise. It's a typical thing. God would make a covenant and he would seal it with a sign. And that's what we see with, with Moses and his, uh, I mean, sorry, with, with uh, Abraham, God and Abraham. When he made a covenant with Abraham, he, he, made, he uh, sealed it, if you will, with a, the sign of circumcision. That here, this is to prove my confirmation of my covenant with you. And so two things we should know right away about the idea of a sacrament and practicing the sacraments in the church is that, number one, the sacraments are exclusively for God's people and and for the New Testament context, for Christians to practice. They are signs which Christians, God, they are signs to represent the covenant that God has made particularly with his people. So they're exclusively for Christians to practice. So if if you're not a Christian today, I would simply say, "Don't, don't practice these, but I would also extend the invitation, you should become a Christian, and and I'll I'll explain more what that means in this message. But the second thing we should know about sacraments in general is that by themselves, sacraments do not save. That's usually the question that people ask. Well, why are we doing it if it doesn't save us? Or alternately, if, if I don't do it, am I not saved? Well, you can be saved without ever participating in the sacraments. Notice the if we were even thinking about uh, practicing the, if we're looking at the Christian life and thinking about practicing the sacraments, just look at the opportunity that the thief on the cross next to Jesus uh, had to simply believe on him. And he believed, and he, Jesus said, well, today you will be with me in paradise, after he confessed Christ's name. And he didn't have the time to get down 
and get baptized or, or take the Lord's Supper, but he was saved. And so we understand that not in, that in and of themselves sacraments save, but they are demonstrations of the saving grace in our life. And I might note there are public demonstrations that we do as a church. And so I intend to show today that they are really gifts for us to celebrate and to strengthen our faith. And so we're going to look at a couple passages today, Matthew 28 um, and then Matthew 26. We're actually going to go in reverse in that case. And we're, we're going to look at where these sacraments originated, what they are, and kind of how they fit into the life of believers and the life of the church. And so the first sacrament that we're going to look at is baptism. Specifically, water baptism. Um, so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse, verses 18 through 20. And this is, this is where we see Jesus specifically command the practice of baptism, and it's embedded in his overall great commission to the disciples. Verse 18 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so there's, just to give a little bit of context here, Jesus has risen from the dead, and he has appeared to his disciples and his appearance to the disciples and his resurrection from the dead really validates all the claims he made about himself and about his deity. And that's why he begins this, this, this commission to them. And he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. This, his resurrection from the dead shows his great authority that God has given to him. And he gives them a commission to evangelize and to make disciples. That basically means to share the gospel with other people and to spread the gospel. And he references the action of baptism in conjunction with evangelism. So what does baptism mean? Well, when Jesus references baptism, you notice he doesn't actually have to define the act itself. The act itself wasn't unfamiliar to Jesus' disciples. Baptism, simply, as they would have understood it, was simply the act of being washed by water as a sign of you know, religious purification. That's a standard you know, dictionary definition, but it's, it was something that was already being practiced in the first century. John the Baptist was baptizing people. That's why he was called John the Baptist. He was baptizing people in his early ministry before Jesus came, and he actually baptized Jesus himself to make a public sign of who the Son of God was. So it was a way to identify Jesus in that case. But when Jesus is ordaining this particular command to his disciples, he's talking about baptism in a very specific and Christian sense. And this is what really he means by baptism. Number one, baptism for Christians is a seal of those who have confessed Christ. It's worth noting here that, that the great last charge that Jesus gives to his disciples is often the first command we obey when we first believe as Christians. You know, we, we believe on Christ and, and we're baptized. So baptism, 
just to, to define it, is for the Christian is a, is a one-time peculiar mark of those who have become disciples of Christ. I, I referenced um, wedding music earlier, and you know, one big thing that, that we, Alyssa and I struggled over was like, what's going to be you know, our, our exit music from the ceremony, and what's going to be our entrance music for the reception? Well, in, in some ways, the, the practice of baptism is kind of like that, that entrance music, which kind of defines your entire Christian life. And, and I, I feel like that, that's a poor analogy because baptism is so much more powerful than simply uh, entrance music. But really, I should say it's a, it's a defining mark that, that sets the tone to the rest of the Christian life. There's some disagreement, um, you know, friendly disagreement uh, among different denominations of who should be baptized. But we in the, the Baptist tradition, we believe in believer's baptism. That is, only those who are disciples who believe on the name of Jesus should be baptized. And those who have confessed Christ and have been forgiven of their sins by that means are washed, therefore, symbolically by the water into a new identity in Christ and speaking of identity, number two, we should learn about baptism is that baptism is an identification with our triune God. Look at verse 19, Jesus' specific mention of the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into no other name than the three persons of the Trinity. That's, that's becomes We're suddenly identified with our Trinitarian God. This became a point of dispute, or it became a point of dispute in 1 Corinthians as Paul was writing to the Corinthian church that people were claiming, oh, I got baptized by so-and-so, this particular pastor, or so-and-so, this particular evangelist or preacher, and they were identifying themselves with that particular pastor or preacher. But um, Jesus would say, and Paul did say, no, your baptism is not identifying you with a particular denomination or a preacher or a certain clique or a certain group. It identifies you with our triune God. Because all three persons are involved in our coming to the Lord and becoming a disciple. The Father sends the Son to us, and the Holy Spirit brings us to the Son through God's Word. So the whole Trinity is involved in the baptism, and therefore should be worshipped in this act, really, which is an act of worship. By this we acknowledge the glory of God. And from now on, Christians who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are declaring by this that they are holy and completely the Lord's. When they go down into the water, they are symbolically kind of discarding who they were, and as they emerge back from the water, they're, they're rising into a new identity in Christ. That's what it, that's what it kind of depicts, the, the true spiritual realities. It's depicting the true spiritual realities that have happened in, inwardly in that person's life. They emerge as a completely new person. That's the idea, as a, as a new creation in Christ. And so on that, number three, the thing we should know about baptism is that baptism is a display of our repentance, forgiveness, and our new life in Christ. And it's a very, it's a recurring, it's a present display. I, I noted earlier that it's a one-time event, that every Christian should be 
baptized. Anyone who believes in the name of Jesus should be baptized. And if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized today, um, let us know because we would love to plan a baptism for the whole church to celebrate um, the, the practice that you're about to make. But remember that the context um, in, in which Jesus was giving the Great Commission and this command to uh, make disciples and to, to baptize people, it was in the context of his resurrection. He had just risen from the dead. And really, baptism shows how the event of this resurrection relates to us in our newness of life through the forgiveness of our sins. Let me explain further with Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse, uh, starting in verse 3. Let me turn there real quick. Paul says, Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Continuing on in verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with Him, in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If you've been baptized already and it was you know, a one-time event in your life, maybe you don't think about it often, but what would, I, what would I would do is encourage you today to think about it a little bit longer. Because some things we don't fully understand until after they happen. I think that's you know, a, something common to our, to our life. That there's an event that we continue to process. And I think that's the intent of the practice of baptism in our own lives, is to really consider the meaning, even in our day-to-day -day life, about baptism. So Paul's words to the Romans here assumes the part of the, the act of baptism on the part of his readers, but he asks, asks them to re-examine their own baptism and what that represented of the spiritual realities in their life. And he's talking about the fact that they have died. Their old self has died. All their desires, all their identity, all their struggles to, to, to please themselves in all the things that they try to do for themselves. Paul said those things are dead to you now. You have a new life in Christ and you should be walking in the newness of life. And Paul also notes in the act of baptism, there's the promise of the resurrection we have in Christ. Just as Christ resurrected from the dead, Paul says baptism is kind of like a small sign of that. It's a small promise that this practice that God gives you is like uh, this little reminder that, hey, death is not the end. You will rise again from the dead. So our goal, if you have been baptized as a Christian, or if you're going to be baptized, is not to... Uh, Leave it as a one-time event and forget it, but it's to continue to understand the significance of this act because you're understanding the significance of believing in Christ and the significance in becoming a new creation, the significance of your spiritual rebirth. So 
this is not to say, of course, that you go into baptism without understanding what you're doing. I think uh, as elders, we would want you to understand what you're doing, but it's vitally important that you perpetually think on what happened in your baptism, that you're constantly changing and growing and experiencing and living the newness of life that Christ has given to you. So Paul would say that your life is really your certificate of baptism. Maybe uh, you've gone baptized and you've gotten a certificate of baptism that says, you know, so-and-so was baptized on this particular day. But I think Paul would say, and that's, that's, by the way, I'm not disparaging that. I think that's great. It's cool, and it's a great reminder for ourselves. But Paul would say, your very life, the, the, the things you desire, the, the, the way you are, the way you're changing to become more like Christ, that's uh, evidenced that you have been baptized, that you're, you're um, a new creation in Christ. And so remembering our baptism helps us really keep going in the Christian life to remind ourselves that we are a new person in Christ. Martin Luther gave this um, advice on, on the idea of remembering our baptism. He says, just as the truth of this divine promise once pronounced over us continues until death, so our faith in it ought never to cease but to be nourished and strengthened until death by the continual remembrance of this promise made to us in baptism. He's talking about the promise of forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, the great promises in God that are represented to us in baptism. He says just keep thinking about your baptism. Keep thinking about that fact that you're a new person and you'll be encouraged, you'll be nourished, and you'll be strengthened even until death by continuing to remember it. So that's the role of baptism. That's the role it plays in the Christian life. But if baptism is a a one-time practice that that really changes our life, um, what do we make of the practice of communion, which is a constant, um, is a frequent celebration? So let's look a little bit further back. We're going to go uh, back a couple chapters to Matthew 26. As we look at the institution, the inauguration of communion. Matthew 26, verse uh, 26, actually, where Jesus institutes this practice of the Christian life. So verse 26 um, sets the stage for us a little bit. Matthew, um, writing the gospel, sets this stage of the scene, what's happening right here in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink all of it or drink it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we see the institution of communion, or alternately called the Lord's Supper. And we notice there are a couple circumstances um, under which Jesus instituted this practice. Just as the circumstances of his institution of baptism were important, this is just as important. Jesus was Uh, having supper with his disciples on the night he was to be betrayed. And the next morning, he would actually be crucified on the cross. 
And if you read the, the Gospel of John, John also records during this time, Jesus was going on an extended discourse about the Holy Spirit and, and I'm going to leave you and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and these various things. And John notes those things. But notice when Jesus really wanted to encapsulate what he was going to do on the cross, the new covenant he was going to establish with believers, he chose this particular mode. Of, of showing them, on establishing them, on giving them this particular sign to, this, to his disciples. And he's saying, I am, what he's saying is basically, I am giving you myself. I am giving you my very body. My beaten body, which is given to you, is going to result in the forgiveness of your sins. And we notice the importance of this just... Uh, from the Old Testament, the fact that like places like Hebrews chapter 9 tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the best gift that Jesus could give His disciples is He Himself. It's His broken body. It's His, it's his spilled blood for, to wash away our sins. This is Jesus representing, hey, I'm giving you of Myself. I think Paul in, encapsulated it well in Galatians chapter 2 when he said, Christ loved me, and He gave Himself for me. His very life. He didn't just give His disciples an inheritance of money that was to be spent. He didn't give them you know, even the shirt off His back, but He gave them His own crushed body, knowing that there was no way for forgiveness of sins, there was no way to, to cleanse them and make them new, but through His very body being beaten and given up for Him. He was showing them by this act that this is your spiritual food. By my sacrifice, you are, you live and you, you thrive. So this is no normal meal, understand. Because this passage says that this took place even as they were eating in verse 26. So this is almost like a meal within a meal. Jesus is signaling a specific event within their meal a specific practice that they were supposed to remember. So it's not just any meal. If I, you know, if I went out with Andrew to lunch and you know, had a discussion, that wouldn't be communion, even though you know, it was two Christians eating. But Jesus is talking about a very specific type of meal. And we're going to define that, what that is right here. So what is communion? What is communion? What are the, the aspects of communion? Well, number one, we should note, as signaled by Jesus Himself, communion is a memorial of Jesus' death. It's a memorial of Him. Whenever we are to eat it, we are to remember Him. In giving us this practice, Jesus gives, this, gives us this directive. We see Paul's uh, words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, recorded of Jesus, saying, He's saying, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I have to clarify that, you know, in contrast to maybe some erroneous belief about what communion is, when we take it together, it's not a ceremony in which, you know, we're, we're re-sacrificing Christ. You know, we're, we're re-crucifying Him because He needs to be, sacrifice Himself again and again for our sins. Rather, it's a memorial meal in which brings afresh, in which we bring afresh to our own memories, the one time Jesus offered Himself all-sufficiently for us. 
So every time we take communion, we really do need to be explicit on what it means that we're taking this bread, we're taking this particular cracker, we're, we're taking this little bit of juice, we're, we're remembering the suffering of Christ and how we are the beneficiaries of that suffering. So think about that, even as we prepare, we're going to take it after the end of this service. So it's solemn, but it's also joyful. It's solemn because we understand the excruciating pain that Christ endured when He was crucified on the cross, when His back was torn open by a cat of nine tails, when He was having a crown of thorns shoved on His head. The excruciating pain that He endured for us, but it's also joyful because we notice that through these things, He's giving us, we are receiving a great spiritual inheritance through the blessing of what He's doing for us on our behalf. So, communion is a memorial of Jesus' death. But I would say it's more than a memorial. It's also, um, number two, it's a communion is a recurring part of our worship. It's a, it's a part of our corporate worship in the church. In the midst of fellowship and prayer, we see the early church really practice communion very early on as a way to worship the Lord on designated days, on the Lord's Day when they all gathered together. This was a part of their worship to glorify God and to give um, worship and praise to Christ. In Acts 2.42, we see that indicated here when they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and then to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I think the indication there is that they were fellowshipping, they were teaching, they were under the... Um, teaching of God's Word, but they continually practiced and constantly practiced communion. They, they broke bread. That's kind of a term for, for what's going on right here, representing what's going on right here in Matthew 26 as well. So the, the early church, the infant church, noticed that this memorial feast was vital as a part of the life of the church and a part of their worship service. So that's why we, we do it in, in the context of a worship service, because we're, it's a way for us to get together and also glorify God. But thirdly, another thing communion is, is real spiritual fellowship with Christ and with one another. In, that's why we call it communion, because it's, it's, we're communing with each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, note this in uh, verse 16. I'm going to turn there myself. Paul says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, and he's talking about the context of communion, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a particip participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Contextually here, Christ, uh, Paul is talking about how the sustaining power of God in the Old Testament for the people of Israel that were... Um, removed and who escaped Egypt. He's talking about how that particular power of God to feed them in the wilderness was really the, the bedrock of God's promises. And how when Christ comes, His ultimate promise is realized in Christ in which He not only you know, sustains us and provides for our, our present needs, but 
more importantly, Christ provides for our eternal needs by giving us himself. And even through Christ, therefore, when, when we are accepting the spiritual blessings that he's giving to us, we have not only, you know, our present life, but we have eternal life. And so Paul is talking about the fact that we are participating in the body of Christ. And by that, he means that we partake of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So just to note here, what's happening is that when we take communion together, we are blessed spiritually in the same way really that the disciples were blessed in the upper room with Jesus on the very first communion. The spiritual blessings are real. The grace and mercy that we find at the foot of of God's throne is real. Those things are all offered to us when we gather together for communion. So to participate, using that word, to participate in the body of Christ is to partake of the blessings of His atonement, to really find grace and mercy in time of need. Maybe you've, you've sinned during this week. Maybe you've blown it in some other way and you think, oh, I, I'm, I'm not worthy you know, to, to you know, fellowship with church or even to practice this thing. You know, this is the, the high, holy thing. This is you know, the, the epitome of Christian practice. Shouldn't I be perfect? Well, communion tells us Kind of the, the opposite, that we're never going to be perfect, but Christ invites us to this table anyway if we're really seeking forgiveness, that we will always find grace and mercy to forgive us of our sins in our time of need. We rest in His all-sufficiency. It's that returning to fellowship with Christ that we're reminded of when we hold these things in our hand. I was reading a confession of the faith called the Belgic Confession of 1561, and it, it characterized communion in this way, and they, they call it the Holy Supper. They say, they say the Holy Supper is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself and all his benefits to us and gives us there to enjoy both himself and the merits of his sufferings and death, nourishing, strengthening, and comforting our poor, comfortless souls by the eating of his flesh, quickening and refreshing them by the drinking of his blood. So note here that how, how very specific that particular uh, phrase was, is that, of course, you know, we don't believe that there's magic properties in these particular things, but when we approach Christ by faith, and when these visual elements help us to remember Him, they help us to understand that there's always grace and mercy for us. That Christ is all-sufficient for our daily bread, our spiritual nourishment, our eternal life. And moreover, as noted by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's we do the, it's something that we do together. We do, it's a corporate thing that unites us in worship. And that's a great thing because by this process, it's a visual representation of, of, of how we are united by Christ. We're all eating from the same bread. We're all benefiting from His singular sacrifice. People from different backgrounds and different ethnicities. We are all coming together to feast really at the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. It's a beautiful, it's a wonderful thing that happens. So that's what baptism is. That's what communion is as well. But I'm going to talk for just a couple minutes about how baptism and communion really helps us grow in our Christian life. And really the way it helps us grow is by... Uh, happening alongside all the other things we've been talking about that we've been, that we've been addressing in our Christian Life series. So we're going to go through a few of those things. Um, 
baptism and communion are not intended, as I'm trying to uh, say over and over again, they're not intended to be isolated to these particular single events, but rather they're intended to go along with the other practices we have in the Christian life. And so this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but um, here's how baptism and communion relate to other aspects of the Christian life. Uh, Number one, these sacraments confirm the promises of God's Word. Baptism necessarily follows uh, particularly evangelism. We saw that in Matthew chapter 28. But notice in, um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 38, which is really the, 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 be- the beginning, beginning of the church, uh, Peter is preaching the gospel to a crowd of uh, more several thousand people. And it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice how baptism, Peter offers the idea of repentance and baptism right along with the preaching of God's Word. So, as faith comes by hearing through the Word of God, we don't believe these practices should ever be divorced or ever take place apart from the Bible being taught. We understand what communion is because of God's Word. And that's why we we preach a sermon and then we take communion together. We don't just one-off take it as though it's like a boost to to our spiritual life. We we take it in conjunction with the the Word because that helps us give faith, that gives faith to our practice. And that helps us to understand the significance of what we're doing. But secondly, um, these practices, the sacraments, they enhance our fellowship with the local church. Notice in, in Acts, chapter 30, uh, Acts chapter 2, after everyone believed and was, they repented of their sins and they were baptized and became believers, immediately they were added to the church. That's what the Bible says. And it was about 3,000 people that were added to the church membership roles. It's a really huge church growth right there. And so right immediately, hey guys, go to church. It was taking place in, um, within the context of the local church. In the same way, the practice of communion is intended to take place within the context of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11 verse 33, Paul is saying, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait until you all get together so you can enjoy this together. One thing that um, when we were shut down and, you know, March through June or whatever that was, one thing the, the elders in our meetings we continually struggled with is that we can't wait to get back together, number one, you know, to, to fellowship together, but also to enjoy communion together, to enjoy communion in, together in person and to fellowship in that way. And a few weeks ago, we, we mentioned an amendment to our, our bylaws which mentioned the uh, ways in which we could also administer communion that were outside of a particular church service, and maybe in smaller settings where an elder was present and, and we could administer that. And that's because we, we want to make sure that we have as many people as possible able to fellowship with one another and experience this great practice together and worship Christ in that way. So that's just an explanation of how that that bylaw amendment um, came about, which um, we we confirmed a couple weeks ago. So 
they enhance our fellowship with the local church. But another thing sacraments do is they help in our sanctification. We already saw in Romans chapter 6 how Paul said, remembering our baptism, bringing it to memory, helps us to remember that we are new creation in Christ. We are dead to our old ways, our old sins, and all those other things. But um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul says, let a person examine himself then, in the context of communion, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Notice Paul's encouragement um, here is not examine yourself and then avoid because you're, you're not worthy of this, but rather in partaking it, we're attempting to challenge ourselves to make sure that we really are believers. We're not hypocrites or pretending or anything like that. We're challenging ourselves to grow in the grace that we receive through Christ. And so they help in our sanctification. And lastly, um, in my non-exhaustive list, the sacraments that the Lord gives us, help, they ready us for the Lord's return. The, um, if you find in various confessions of the faith throughout history that people write of summaries, they always note how the practice of the sacraments are to continue really until the coming of the Lord. And really that's, that's noteworthy and that's important because really they should help us to anticipate the Lord's coming. Remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Jesus says this about the first communion. He says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we get this final unification of, and it's symbolic, uh, symbolically represented by the bride and the groom of the church coming to Christ at the end of all things, and it's celebrated with a feast. And so every time we experience communion, every time we practice communion, we're not only proclaiming the Lord in our present day, but we're anticipating the day in which we can celebrate in perfect unity and in perfect fellowship with Christ in heaven, celebrating that. So right now we're going to transition into a time of communion. And as I said at the outset of um, this message, that these particularly these particular sacraments, these ordinances that the Lord has given to us are for Christians only. And after everything I've said, you're thinking, oh, these, these sound like great blessings that we have in Christ, but am I really worthy to take them? Can I really practice these? Well, these teaching tools, these visual representations, these signs and seals that God has given to us to confirm His covenant really are extensions to show us the endless mercy and grace that Christ extends to people who would simply turn to Him, who would believe on Him, who would repent of their sins, believing on Christ's death and resurrection, and believing in Him for eternal life. And so if you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you to believe in Christ and to take this in fellowship with the church. Because these things are, particularly communion, are representative of the mercy and grace of Christ to us. And so we partake of them in faith. Father, we are again thankful for Your grace and Your mercy. And Lord, we come to You maybe in many ways exhausted. Lord, maybe we come to You just uh, spiritually exhausted. But Lord, let us, even by this sign that we're about to take today, in communion, let us re refresh to our memory 
the great promises we have in Christ, in His sufficiency, in His love, in His faithfulness to us and to the church. And Lord, even as we, we take it, um, and the frequency with which we take it uh, happens, Lord, we, we ask that we would always be taking it in remembrance of You, that, Lord, You would be first in our minds as we look at these elements. And so, Lord, we ask You to bless this time and show us in great way Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.